Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to The Drummer's Pathway podcast. Throughout our lives, we strive to follow the paths which allow us to find joy and fulfillment in both the opportunities we seek and the ones which are provided to us. Sometimes, despite our best efforts, we all encounter challenges or setbacks. The lessons learned from these experiences may help us grow stronger in these situations, but often at times, the obstacles ahead of us appear so monumental and overwhelming that we are faced with a sense of doubt or anxiety which can manifest itself in ways we feel we are unable to control. My guest today is Darcy Patrick. For over 25 years, Darcy was making a living from music as a professional bass player, freelancing with many different bands, as well as teaching privately. At the same time, he was also working full-time in a music store, doing sales, repairs, and assisting in managing the store. In 2013, The perfect storm happened in his life and pushed him over the edge. Darcy had struggled for over 38 years from depression and had to make a difficult call for help. After a month of intense therapy, Darcy's therapist started giving him homework. Through these weekly assignments, they would talk about what he had written and worked on changing his negative thoughts and changing the way he was seeing the world. His therapist told him he was a natural writer And then if he wrote a book, he could change people's lives who suffer in silence and who are often too afraid to reach out and get help. Four years later, he released his first book, Why I Run, my story of how I won my life back from the darkness of depression. Darcy then went on to write four more books, including Creative Writing for the Mind, Body, and Soul, My Guide to Meditation, using meditation as a therapeutic tool to focus on your overactive mind. The big let go, letting go of control, is taking control. And his latest book, Managing Wellness, Creating and Maintaining a Mind, Body, and Soul Connection. Since the release of Darcy's books, his life has changed dramatically. He became a public speaker and a peer counselor doing talks all around southern Ontario, from many different mental health and addiction organizations to raise awareness. His goal is to break the stigma behind depression, mental health, and addiction, and to help as many people as he can by letting them know they are not alone. In our interview today, we talk about how common these challenges can be for all of us, and why it's essential to not only seek out support when we need it, but to understand the impact and value it can have just to take the time to listen without judgment. Let's get started. So Darcy, it's a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for having me, Mike. For over 25 years, you had established a successful music career as an in-demand bass player in the Niagara region. You always presented yourself as positive and professional, but despite the perceptions that other had of you and your accomplishments, you quietly struggled with a negative self-image which ultimately manifested itself through anxiety and depression. While these characteristics were not always evident to those around you, you eventually reached to a point where it became unmanageable. 
What were your experiences that led you up to the point where you took the brave step to seek help? Well, when one thing gets added on to another, added on to another, and added on to another, um, sooner or later, you have to break. So um, I think that for the longest time, you know, I was doing three people's jobs. As we know, as musicians, we just can't be a musician. We have to have like three things going at the same time to make uh, a normal person's one thing happen. So I would say that the breaking point really came when the uh, family-run music store that I was working at uh, was purchased by a large musical retailer. And so because of my depression and my anxiety, my low self-esteem, I needed to hide in plain sight and I needed to take on every possible job that I could take on uh, in order to, you know, be valued because I had struggled with depression for so long. And I knew that if they ever found out about uh, my illness, that I'd become a liability. So, and they would, you know, they would end up getting rid of me somehow, uh, which kind of happened. But, um, that was kind of the breaking point where I took on so many jobs. So I went from being like, you know, a guitar repair guy uh, to a salesman, to assistant manager, to shipping and receiving. You know, I had like, I was doing probably about five people's jobs uh, before I broke and I couldn't take the stress anymore. And, you know, I was recognizing it because I was becoming very emotional uh, I was crying constantly when I was uh, in between sets and gigs. I'd be go to my car and I would cry uh, when I was in my basement practicing my bass, when I was running, uh, you know, and when I was, I was ever left alone at work, I was crying. So the downward uh, spiral that took place after that stressful moment happened uh, you know, was the key to me going, okay, it's time to finally, you know, get help. When you look back at some of those situations, were you always aware of what the triggers were? Or did you find that you could kind of go from one extreme to the other, you could be having a conversation, and having a great interaction with a colleague or, or a client or in a band situation. And could you feel yourself starting to slip or would it often just like a flick of a switch turn from one emotion to the other? I would say that it, depending on the circumstance, it could be me recognizing it and then uh, it could be a flip of a switch. And one thing that I learned through therapy was that a lot of my problems when it came to uh, my depression was that I was fueling my depression with alcohol. So if I was drinking, um, then the emotions and the depression kicked in quicker and faster, and the situation seemed bigger and bigger than what they were. Um, but the good news was, was that like once I started therapy, I started to actually be aware of what was happening uh, on a level that I wasn't able to before. So a lot of the times, things just seemed like, this is the way my life is. It's never going to change. And I kind of rolled with it. And then once I started therapy, I became what I like to call an emotionally aware human being. 
Um, so I was able to recognize when situations were pushing and pulling me in in different directions. And then I had tools to deal with. Now, you have stated through some of your talks and throughout the books that you've written, which we will get to shortly, that you look back at your life and you can see elements throughout your lifetime that always caused an issue of self-doubt and self-esteem. At, at a younger age, you're not always aware of that what these triggers and things are, but over time, these things can build upon your emotions and it, skills or perceptions that you had at yourself as a youth can significantly reflect your life when you get into, into adulthood. So looking back to when you were younger, where did you first start to see some of the things occur that started to kind of eat away at you in terms of your your confidence or your self-esteem? Yeah, I, I mean, I lived in a house where I had six older brothers. Uh, so it was kind of like a almost a jailhouse mentality and is almost being like on a schoolyard constantly. So, I mean, I grew up and I couldn't pronounce the letter R. So saying my name, if you could imagine, uh, Darcy came out as Dosi. So I was made fun of at home. Uh, I was made fun of at school. Uh, I refused to raise my hand in class answer questions, reading out loud was like terrifying. So I kind of stopped being myself and started acting um, to fit in at a very, very early age of my life. And it kind of propelled uh, my way of thinking of who I was and how I fit into the world was that I could never really be myself because every time I tried to be myself, I would be faced with uh, humiliation, and I would be made fun of. What I had to say would be downgraded. So it kind of really, really grew as I allowed it to grow, you know, because our normals tend to, uh, over time, our normals grow within us, like being a musician, right? Like it was one of the th one of the only things that I found a brotherhood in was being a musician where I found somewhere where I could fit in, where I could talk through my instrument and not, you know, through my voice. And what is it that brought you to music in the first place? So everybody kind of has their own inspirational stories about uh, how they got into music, um, where there was like kind of a light bulb moment. But again, mine was very funny because my best friend who lived across the street from me, uh, you know, started to play guitar. And <clears throat> one day after I was finished school, I went over to play with him. And I knocked on his front door and his mom said, oh, Mark can't play after school anymore. He has to do an hour worth of practice on his guitar every day. And I was like, oh, so I like walked away and I was like heartbroken. And I went back to my house and I was upset. And my mom said, what's wrong? You know, and I was like, well, Mark started playing guitar. Now I can't hang out with him. So she mentioned that uh, we had a guitar that was sitting in my in my closet that my brother had started to play that was broken. And we could get it fixed and then we could start playing guitar together so I could get my friendship back. 
that I had, you know, um, my friend Mark is, you know, my, my closest friend, even to this day from five years old to 51, I probably talk to him, you know, almost every day. So my motivation to play music was to gain back a friendship. And so I did, I got that guitar fixed and we started to play music together. And I found that playing music, playing uh, guitar was like the one place where I was productive and I was in control of making that instrument make all the sounds. And the harder I practiced, the better I got at it. So I was able to see success in my life at a very early age. And then, you know, we put a little band together and we needed a bass player. So, you know, you can't have two, a band with two guitar players, a drummer and no bass player. So I uh, decided that I was going to be the, uh, the, the Paul McCartney in the band, because I think that everybody kind of wishes that they were, uh, they were Paul McCartney at one point in time, but I'm really a bigger George Harrison fan, but that's a different story. For me, I was always intrigued and gravitated towards music. But when I was young, I never had the confidence in myself or my abilities that I would be able to learn how to be a musician. I originally became a percussionist in school because of the fact that we had to take instrumental music. And I remember thinking, if I'm a percussionist, I can contribute by being part of a bigger picture ensemble and the value that i got in that is that the attention wouldn't be brought on me because if i thought of putting myself kind of on a, on a pedestal or a platform and having the focus on me that was incredibly overwhelming and intimidating so i loved the fact that i could be part of an ensemble i never expected in grade seven that for almost 40 years later I would still actually be an active and a successful musician. But throughout those stages of development from the beginning to later on, there's always those different challenges that people face of comparison. First, it's all about finding joy in that new experience, finding something that intrigues you and that curiosity fuels you to explore and to try something new. Once you get to a level of proficiency, there's the joy of looking back and saying, okay, I've got some fundamental skills in this. But then through observation, you often run into the anxiety of comparison. And even though you're developing and you're committed to your craft, comparing yourself to others can be incredibly overwhelming. And at some times, that will lead people who have developed a skill set into just giving up and moving on to something else. So I know throughout your career, now your life, there has always been times when you've looked at elements of comparison. But as you've worked through some of the, the skills that you've developed and interacted with other people who are finding the same challenges, what are some of the things that you can offer as suggestions to help them work through some of that? Uh, <clears throat> now you're talking with like, like men, mental health. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the one thing that I always lean on when I, when I talk with peers, I, I always kind of elaborate that my way of expressing myself came easy through written word. 
that when I started therapy, that my way of actually applying the tools was to write them out and to get my thoughts and make my own uh, outlines on paper. Because I kind of always like to break rules. And I kind of always, even when I played music, I looked at things a little bit differently. And I had to make them my own in order for them to work, right? Because when we're told to do things, we often don't want to do them, right? We don't like to be bossed around, told what to do. And so I always kind of stress that you, we have to make things relatable and we have to let people have a freedom to make them their own because that's the only way that therapy or anything in our lives really sinks in is when we can make it something that we can identify with, make it our own and actually enjoy doing. Uh, because a lot of people look at therapy as a, uh, as a, a as a dirty word, right? As something that doesn't, you don't want to talk too much about. But when you make it your own and you're actually proud of what you're doing, uh, then, you know, things really change. So the one thing that I always hammer home when I'm working with people is that, you know, how can we make this something that you enjoy doing? I know for me, when I look back, particularly to my early 20s, that was when I was really dealing with some mindset struggles. And at that point, you know, there's something wrong. And you know, that all of the different sort of things that you're looking at, just don't feel like they're lining up the way that they're supposed to be. So I had originally went out and I spoke to a counselor um, through my family doctor. And the biggest element that I got out of that is that the challenges that I was having were anxiety based challenges versus depression. And I really have learned that there's a great distinction between anxiety and depression. There are elements in both which will occur, you know, you can deal with some anxiety issues and have lots of elements of depression and depression is often fueled and based on factors of anxiety, but the treatment, for a lot of these situations can be very different. And I think when people are struggling with a mindset challenge, I think it's imperative that you work with someone to help you figure out what your specific challenge is, because if everyone treats things the same way, you often cannot really get to the root of the problem. So I felt I was dealing with um, a depression issue, it turned out to be anxiety. I got some fantastic treatment in terms of how to deal with that. And I was able to overcome a lot of those. But I think if I had left things on my own, then I might not have been able to embrace that. So I know for you, you have elements of both, but you were really looking at some anxiety, uh, at some issues with regards to depression. How did that diagnosis come along? And what were the tools that were given to you to start working through that treatment? So. My uh, diagnosis was when I, well, when I had first met my therapist, we had, it was a, probably about, you know, I'm going to say about two, three months in where she was like, you know, it's just not depression. You have like a lot of uh, anxiety and a lot of your depression is fueled by the anxiety that, that you carry and, and your, ju your forever judgments 
that are being that you that I felt were being placed upon you. Uh, so we started to work specifically on problem solving around situations that were happening in my life that were causing me to lose sleep. Because when we lose sleep for two or three nights, um, we can be headed down a really rough road as far as it goes. We're sinking into a depression. So we worked on problem solving skills, uh, seeing different perspectives of situations. Uh, and we also worked on a lot of cognitive behavior therapy to help with my negative thinking. So it's kind of like a combination of a bunch of stuff. And then we brought in, uh, you know, believe it or not, we brought in like meditation and mindfulness, which I thought was going to be the worst things that could ever happen to me because I had like this preconceived thing where it was like mindfulness and meditation was like hippy trippy baloney that would never have any part of my life. Right. So, and it became the cornerstone to, uh, to my recovery and to how I used my tools that I was being taught. So, I mean, I think that for everyone's mental health struggles and everyone's, you know, struggles with anxiety or with depression, you need the proper therapist, you need the proper person who can cater your treatment plan to what your needs are. And like you said, I think it goes into a lot of listening more than talking, where the greatest gift that each and every one of us has is our ears and not necessarily our mouths. We have to listen uh, to what people are saying before we can fully understand them and, and know why they're struggling with the things that they're struggling. You know, that's when we get to the root of the problem. That's when we learn to apply different tools to help alleviate the stresses that come into their lives, right? Because depression and anxiety, like you had described, you know, they can be uh, kissing cousins, right? They can like be connected right at the hip um, or they are two different things altogether. But if we don't listen and if we don't actually start paying attention to what's triggering us, what's sending us in the directions that we're going, then we won't really ever find a solution. Throughout your initial experiences through therapy, um, you were assigned a lot of journal tasking to go through and to take the ideas and the challenges that you had in your head and jot them on a piece of paper. And I really find the process of taking them from your head, jotting them on a piece of paper, seeing them in front of you allows you to kind of change your perspective. And at that way, you can start to work through and organize things. And it's a way to start working through the things that you can learn to let go, which is probably one of the biggest challenges that most of us had have in our lives is the process of letting go, hence your fourth book, which we will get to. But it's the same sort of thing with tasks. I, you know, I find myself and many people, they're overwhelmed with the life tasks that they need to do. You know, they have, they have to go shopping, they gotta clean this stuff, or they gotta take their car in. And they have this list of things that they, that they need. And it feels like you're carrying this giant weight because no matter what you accomplish, you still have this list that just keeps growing. By, by being able to take a lot of those and jot them down and see those things in front of you, it allows you to start breaking things into smaller groups and tackle them to completion. I had a, a therapist say to me when I was kind of going back into some challenges a little while ago, you love lists, 
So your challenge for the next month is you can't make any lists because the one thing that you are not putting on your list is yourself. What you're starting to do is that you're making a list of all of these tasks and commitments and responsibilities that you have made to other people. And one of the things that's most important is that you actually take the time to fulfill the things in your life that are bringing you joy, whether it be your relationships or your experiences, you know, being a musician and that process of discovery and the confidence that you can get by just building a skill set. But if you never put yourself first, you never have the energy to properly engage the elements of your life that are most important. So I, I really have found that process of just jotting things down and prioritizing yourself and your and your mindset and your and your mental health to be the most important factor. And I think too many times it's the last thing that people put on their list or they never actually do. And I know for you in reading your first book, uh, Why I Run, one of the things that you talked about was discovering that you were a workaholic and then you would show up to work two hours early and you would work unpaid just because you felt a responsibility to get things done and to not let people down and your days suddenly became based on the need to satisfy other people's expectations to the point where you wouldn't take breaks you would work for three or four hours a day unpaid you were not asked to do that, but it was something that you brought up on yourself. And by looking at this and thinking, if I get through all of the stuff, it will fulfill me and I will feel good with my accomplishments. It actually has the opposite effect. So one of the things that you learned when you started through your, your therapy was to take time in the morning for yourself. And I believe you talked about you would go to a coffee shop and you sit there and you bring your journal and you would take an hour before work and you would spend time away from your family and focusing on you. And that was a huge struggle for you at the beginning because of this overwhelming sense of guilt that by taking the time for yourself, you in essence were being selfish to everyone else's expectations. And that made things actually even worse. So I know for me, one of the biggest challenges that I've had in my life is overcoming a sense of guilt. And it's usually not because of anything significant. It's just the personal perceptions of other people's expectations that can often lead you down those paths. How long did you find it took you to get to the point where you started to accept that it was okay to take time for yourself? It took me about a year before I was, I felt good about feeling good. And it meant that I had to have a regimented self-care routine um, that I had to implement in my life every, every day. And then I had to also implement that there was going to be a day where I took the entire day off and did absolutely nothing. Uh, which is Sunday. I do absolutely nothing on Sunday other than talking with you today, Mike. Um, but yeah, it took a long time and I had to be really, really diligent about it. And when you talk about making lists, 
um, you know, that's when the anxiety comes in where we, we have a list of 10 things that we need to do in one day. So what I learned was that I had to make a self-care plan and I had to stick to that. And the first thing on my self-care plan was about me. And then it would have to bleed into my daily work. And then it would have to go back to me. And then it would go, you know, back to work and then back to me. Meaning, so in the morning I was going to work. And instead of just going to work, I was going to that coffee shop. I was sitting. I was treating myself. I was just being Darcy. You know, the world could wait for me. And then I'd go to work. And then every single day, and to this day I do this, at 12 o'clock, I stop everything that I'm doing for an hour and I have lunch. Then I go and I work and then I stop work and have nothing to do with it after I leave. I don't check my emails. I used to bring, I used to check my emails at home. And when I started my new job at West Fifth as a, as a peer support worker, the very first day my boss was like, so if you want to check your email on your phone, this is the app you download. And I was like, do I have to do that? And she said, well, no, you don't have to. And I'm like, okay, because I want nothing to do with checking my email when I'm at home. So I had to really make this clear and distinct line between doing things for myself and working. And after about a year, like it really started to feel natural where I started to see every day how my moods and my emotional state were changing dramatically because I was allowing myself to feel good about feeling good. And that's like a really hard thing for a lot of people to do is to have good experiences uh, and feel good about it. I used to organize my Sundays by, I would make a list of the things that I needed to complete, uh, you know, at the end of the week. And they're all small little things, you know, it's maybe some, some daily chores or songs that I needed to learn for, for a show, or just the things that I just wanted to accomplish for the, for the week. I would also make lists of things that I wanted to accomplish for the week ahead. And that was part of my routine. And it, what I would always do is I would plan my day based on making the lists, accomplishing the things on the lists and getting really excited about once I complete these, I had, I now have the rest of the day for myself, which was a good plan. But what would happen is at six o'clock in the evening, after I just finished, you know, either cleaning dishes for dinner or maybe starting to make dinner, I would now sit down and say, now the rest of the evening is for me except I wasted the entire day doing the things that I thought would allow me the opportunity to really find joy and relaxation. And I now had no energy and I was stressed and felt guilty because of the fact that I didn't make the time for myself. And I did that for years. So it wasn't until I started to realize, Hey, wait a second. I'm a bit of a workaholic with regards to my need to satisfy other people's commitments and expectations. And I really had to start sort of taking that time for myself. One of the other things that I've learned is that all the things that have to happen will happen. You know, you, you have, you have that appointment you need to do, you have that work commitment, you have all these other things, all of those things will happen. 
but it's amazing how much faster they happen and how much better those things happen when you've actually taken the time to take care of yourself. And I know that is a struggle for many, many people. When you started your therapy, you did a lot of journaling and you went through and you assessed and dealt with a lot of the different feelings that you had. But that journaling eventually led you to writing a book, which gave you the opportunity to not only share your story, but to also share your steps that you went through and how you were able to overcome many of the challenges that you had been dealing with throughout your life. You also made a point of this book that it wasn't just about telling your story, it was about opening yourself up so that you can share that story with other people so they can tell their story. And your real goal behind all of this was to open up these conversations and to give people an outlet where they felt comfortable coming up and saying, hey, you know what? I'm in exactly the same boat that you are that you're in, but no one's ever discussed this before. And you did a lot of book readings and a lot of different seminars and workshops. Through those experiences, what were some of the most common elements that people had as challenges that kept coming up in those discussions? That no one was capable of actually listening to them without giving advice. So a lot of the time people just needed someone to talk to. And I quickly, like after that book came out, that first book, it was amazing what had happened because, you know, I thought I would sell maybe 40 or 60 books to my friends and family out of like, you know, pure pity. And in the first year I sold over 1500 copies just out of my hand, not including internet sales. And the coolest thing that happened from that, and you kind of touched on it, was that all of a sudden people were coming into my place of work every day, sometimes three people at a time to talk to me about their mental health problems and their struggles because they felt comfortable around me because they knew that the way I felt was the same way they felt. And we, with mental health, we get into this thing where we want to fix people. We want to make them better. But a lot of the time, people just need to be heard and listened to. And I was, you know, that person that all of a sudden I could listen and I could hear their problems. And a lot of the recurring uh, things that were happening was that people were acting. They were seeking approval for others. Everything that they were doing in their life was based off of doing those things to seek other people's approval, like I said, they were judging themselves against themselves or against others. They were trying to see success by, you know, gaining outside praise instead of inside praise. And so, yeah, I wanted to help and I wanted to show people how I was doing it. Because the one thing that I think that is missing in mental health is the how. And a lot of people have really good advice when you're struggling. Um, just let go. Just move on. Pull up your socks. That's in the past. Don't worry so much. Like I can list off like a whole bunch of stuff, but nobody ever actually gives you full instructions on how to do it. So my goal from the from you know writing that first book when I when I decided that I was going to do it 
and I sat down at my computer and I wrote the intro to that, I swore that every time that I was going to write anything, that it was going to be 100% honest and it was going to be from a personal perspective and it was going to be what I experienced in my life and I was never going to regurgitate. I was never going to imitate um, from what other people were saying about mental health because I needed people to really, really understand that the way that I was feeling was the same way they were feeling. And I think it kind of worked. I have read the book multiple times and I'm always blown away by how emotional it can be when you look back, first of all, because you and I have known each other for over 30 years and it wasn't probably until a conversation we had probably eight or nine years ago that I had any idea that any of these things that you were going through were, were a challenge in your life because of the way that you present yourself. You're always positive, you're easy going, you've got a great sense of humor. At times you could kind of like be, you know, the life of the party in a room. But discussions that you and I had, and also this came out in your book, is that you found that you ended up having to play a role. You almost created a character of yourself as a mask to protect yourself or protect others from the feelings that you were actually dealing with. And so you would come in and it was always like, yes, I'm playing a role. And when you're in the situation where you feel like you have to play the caricature of other people's expectations, that not only can be extremely negative on your own well-being, but it can also be incredibly exhausting because you now have to feel like you, you have you have these expect expectations that you need to live up to. We have shared many different experiences, but I almost found encouraged more about dealing with my own issues when I actually had this conversation with you about some of the challenges that you were having. Since the first book, you have written more books. The second book was on the process of creative writing as a therapy tool to help you go through and work on the journaling aspects. The third book, a book you probably never figured you'd actually write in the first place, is all on about meditation and the process of meditation, which is something that you had thought would never be an aspect in your life, but has now become an incredibly important aspect in, in your lives. The fourth book particularly resonated with me, and that was on the process of letting go. Because if I look back in my life, there are many things in my life that are maybe not sound like negative things, but are just situations that have occurred that for some reason or other have stuck with me to this day. And then I carry a strong sense of guilt. You know, and it might be you know, someone ex experienced a disappointment at something. I happened to be there at the time, even though their disappointment never had anything actually to do with me. I took on the emotion and the feelings that they had because of these situations, and I somehow managed to internalize it into something of which I felt responsible for. And I have carried these elements of guilt with me throughout my life. And I find for me, that's one of the hardest things to let go is that sense of guilt, particularly when it is something that has nothing to do with you. So in your book, Letting Go, what are some of the concepts 
that you have found that are common characteristics of people who are struggling with these situations? And what are some things that you would say to them in terms of ways that they can start to overcome or begin to let go of those burdens of which they've been carrying? Yeah. So the big let go, letting go of control is taking control, right? So that book, you know, was written in a, during a really, really special time. And that time was when I was, I started writing that book when I, so when I incorporated, when I initiated my out from working in the music store. So I started to write that book because I needed to let go of, of, of so many things from my past. And when I started therapy, I initiated a plan to let go, to get out of that music store, to get out of that, that, that toxic work environment. And so the whole basis behind it was that like, we think that we can control so many things in our lives. And when we have a control mindset and we want, when we need, when we think that we have to do certain things to fit in, to be a part of something, it actually ends up destroying us. And there's this one thing that I, you know, that I, I, I really love to see on social media. And it's like, people will post this picture of someone standing on a big, beautiful beach with beautiful skies. And the person's like got their arms stretched out and there's waves crashing behind them. And it says, just let go, right? Well, teach me how, right? Teach me how, because all these wonderful sayings don't mean squat unless you teach them how. So I had a list and I had a group of tools that I incorporated through the Big Let Go that I had experience using. And those tools were radical acceptance being able to accept things in your life for what they are and then finding a way to live within the situation or you leave it. And when it came to the music store, uh, I left it and I found a better path. But radical acceptance uh, has creeped into my life now in ways I never thought it would. But that was a tool that I you know, made an outline to for people so they can learn how to accept things in their lives to see what this thing's doing to them emotionally and then the steps that they need to take to let go. And one of those steps uh, is forgiveness, learning what that actually is, um, that when we forgive, it's not going up to someone and saying, I forgive you, because forgiveness is for us. It's not for the other person. I also talk about, you know, the importance of setting boundaries, when to say no, uh, and why, you know, and there's specific steps to, you know, setting boundaries as well. So what I did through the big let go is I kind of broke down guilt. I broke down changing perspective. I broke down forgiveness, radical acceptance, and I broke them into usable tools that people can identify with and see themselves within the situation so they can better themselves and they can let go. Because like you said, like letting go, especially when it comes to trauma, it's like the hardest thing to do because 
trauma looks different for every person. Every person needs to like have tools to to get over those traumas. So the big let go, uh, letting go of control is taking control. It even scares me sometimes when I say that title because we all kind of want to live in a controlled environment, right? But actually all the fun, cool stuff takes place when we let, let go completely and we let that control just, you know, melt away. And that's where the fun and where the beautiful things and where we grow the most is when control is, re is relinquished, right? Well, and I think that one of the things that you have done exceptionally well in your books is that you've outlined the path that worked for you, but you've also outlined some of the other experiences and some of the other tools that were given to you so that people have a choice because you can read a self-help book and then the whole concept of the self-help book is do what I do the way that I did it and you will be the best person and you will have the best life. Teachers and often in a formal teaching environments and school environments, too many times stick to a curriculum that has the same goals at the end. And I've said this in, in other episodes as well, that one of the biggest challenges that I see is that everyone teaches you what to learn, but nobody tells you, teaches you how to learn, or they tend to teach everything in the same way. And if we're, if we look at the people in front of us, everyone is unique. We can have 20 people in a room, but that room, those 20 people in the room may have 12 different learning styles. I've taught in situations where some people are really active participants in a classroom environment. More often than not, the people that are the really active participants are the ones that already have all the information that they need. What they're seeking is the validation of being able to demonstrate that they already have all of the information that you're teaching them. Too often, the people that don't get the attention are the people that sit in the back of the room that you think aren't paying attention, but they're often the ones that are most deeply involved in your message. But you have to go up to them and approach them and give them the opportunity to talk because often they'll say, hey, if you have any questions, come up and talk to me. I guarantee you, I'm not going to do that. That's not my personality style. But if someone takes the time to come up and communicate with me, I'm very open and I am thrilled to have those opportunities to have those conversations in a safe environment because not everyone wants to broadcast all of the challenges that they have to everyone. Yes, there are elements of, yes, that's good to share, but you have to be mindful and respectful of the people's different approaches. Now, you had a very successful career as a freelance bass player, and you worked at this successful music store for a number of years, and we've talked about that too. And then through your challenges and the changes that you made, you went on to become a peer counselor which is something that has really added an element of joy and satisfaction into your life because now you get the opportunities in a one-on-one -on -one scenario to learn about people and give them the opportunity just to share as you had said earlier too many times people want 
to help and they give you advice. And sometimes people aren't seeking advice. They're seeking someone with compassion to take the time just to listen without judgment. Now, I know without getting specific that there are people from all walks of life that you've had the chance to kind of interact with me being a musician and dealing with a community of people that are artists there are certain sort of standard characteristics that are often um in abundance when it comes to dealing with people on in in the creative field what are some of the challenges that you have found that are fairly common when interacting with people in the creative field judgment where people like so people who struggle with mental health issues are like the most creative people on the face of the earth okay like you give them a judgment free uh like you said safe place for them to express themselves whether it be dance whether it be music well whether it be art uh you name it these people will excel like you wouldn't believe but a lot of the things that hold them back is their self-doubt and judgment and so you have to give them the opportunity to be in a judgment-free place and one thing that i love to do when i'm working with musicians because i work with about three musicians uh in my job now is that I always love to compare, um, you know, learning how to play that instrument and learning how to apply the tools, right? Where it's like, you got to make them your own. You got to do them over and over again, because you just don't sit down behind a guitar and just, you know, and just play it. it. These, you know, we dedicate hours and hours and hours into our crafts. Um, and over time, people who struggle with depression and anxiety and other mental health struggles, they've dedicated years of their lives to being this way. They've honed it. It's their protection system. This is their reality. So when you give them a new tool, you also have to give them permission to learn how to use it in their own way. And then they, you know, they embrace it and they run with it but it's giving them that time to find their own way because a lot of the time people are super impatient and they want things right away especially in this life that we're living now we live in a consumer-based where environment where we want it now we want it now we want it now but the truth is that mental health is not like that and so we have to learn to grow learn how to apply tools and do them in our own ways. And, you know, one example that I love to give is that like I worked out of a book early on that terrified the hell out of me and it was called mind over mood. And this book gave complicated instruction on how to do things. And not only that, every tool was only used when I like to be, what I, what I like to say is when I was being, a bad boy. But what about when I was experiencing good things? So I invented something that was called a positive thought record, right? Where we learn to add up the good things in our lives, right? We can call it practicing gratitude, 
But a lot of people don't even know what that is because we just say, I'm grateful for, you know, mashed potatoes. But <laughs> no one gives the reasons why they're grateful for mashed potatoes, right? Because my reasons for liking mashed potatoes and yours are different. So the key thing is, is to find, you know, to listen, to be patient, to find what makes each individual tick and make it relevant so they can apply a tool and smile about it and go, yeah, like I get that. Like I get where that came from for the first time. I understand how I can solve this problem. And it's always a common thing where they judge it. Right. And so only with time practice and more practice, can we, uh, can we overcome that? My therapist always used to say to me, Darcy, when you were depressed, you worked extremely hard at being the most depressed person that you could possibly be. But then when you turn the corner, you also use that same energy to do the wonderful things that you're doing for other people. So the energy is there. We just have to learn how to put it in the right direction. Well, as a perspective to that, I know for myself, when I've had struggles throughout my life, when you're feeling at your lowest is when you often seek the most attention and the more attention that you get, the longer you want to sit at that low period because you're getting the attention that you seek by experiencing the feelings that you don't want to have. And it can be really challenging at times to suddenly switch into a more positive mindset because there's that there's that sense that by feeling the way I did before I got the attention that I didn't necessarily feel like I needed but I got and you got that sympathy and then suddenly when you're feeling better and you're no longer getting that interaction you start to question your value because now people just don't want to spend the same amount of time with you because they spent more time with you before but really it's just a matter of you were trying to draw in those energies more and i just it's something that i i have noticed um over the years that i find kind of be an interesting perspective sometimes there's comfort in the negative feelings that you have and there's discomfort in the positive feelings that you have and it's really about learning to find that balance let go of that need to absorb those energies and to really start to embrace the uh, the, the the positive energy that you get which will actually empower you to move on and to fulfill your life in a way that we all desire yeah, I agree. And it becomes a warm blanket, right? Where it's something mm -hmm. that we we know that we can get and we don't have to we don't have to fight for it. We don't have to hunt for it. It's always there. Um and that goes for person, you know, personal connection, you know, you had mentioned it kind of plays into that, right? So it was funny because when I stopped drinking and I stopped gigging, um <clears throat> I remember going in to see my therapist and saying like, you know what? I have no friends now, like everybody's gone. And she said, the only thing that you lost was your connection, your common ground, right? 
those people that you used to hang out with, spend all that time with, they're still in those same places. They haven't made the choice to change. In fact, if you go back there, they'll probably buy the first round and welcome you back with open arms. But the truth is, is that once you make that choice to better yourself, there's always a little bit of time where you feel alone because you lost your warm blanket, lost the people that you that you run with, right? That you're 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 what do they call it? Like all these motivational speakers call it uh, your tribe, right? I don't like buzzwords, but yeah. So you lose your tribe, you lose your tribe, and uh, now it's time you got to find a new one, right? So yeah, that warm blanket, man. When you lose it, it's a it's it's a tough time, but feeling good. You know, I always say that, you know, for for 10 negative things in our lives, one good thing, if we give it permission, can erase the 10 negatives. But we have to be able to accept it and give it and give it permission to do so. I agree 100 percent. But then there's the whole issue of having to deal with the guilt factor to give yourself permission to let that override the other things. But I think too many times people think that this is something that you can kind of work on for a month and it's going to be easier. But the reality is, is that you just have to work on this for your lifetime because you can get through different situations and you can make some great progress. But life is going to throw you some challenges and some triggers that at times will put you back into the mindset that you had before. The difference is, is that if you put in the time to develop the tools to change your mindset, change your approach, it'll be easier for you when you take those steps back to get out of that hole and to carry on again, because you realize that's just all part of the process. It's not a matter of you fix it and it's good. It's a matter of you have to maintain it. You know, we're kind of like cars. You can buy a car that's a beautiful car and you can run it into the ground if you never change the oil or you never do all these other things. But if you maintain it properly, then that will basically provide you um, years and years of adventures and everything that you need in order to kind of properly maintain your life. And so I think the mental health aspect is extremely important. Book five was basically, I think it's uh, managing wellness. And it, in a way, is, is almost kind of like a little summation of the tools and the things that you have kind of discovered or that you talked about in your first four books. And I think it's a fantastic reference because you can work through the first ones, but you have to go back and revisit them. So by going through the managing wellness book, it's kind of like that little refresher. It's your little check it in terms of, Hey, did you work through the other things? How are you doing? Hey, are you still struggling with this? Here's something new to try. Keep on going. And I find, all of them in sort of succession can be extremely important tools to help anyone in these situations. And I think that one of the things that we all kind of seek is not just attention, but it's a sense of, you talked about tribes, but tribes sometimes can be something you need at certain stage in your life. But what we really need is a sense of community. And that doesn't mean a huge group of people. Your community can be one-on-one. -on -one. What you need is that, that situation or that environment that allows you to share and express in a safe way. And, and I think particularly males in this society 
can often have a hard time with those situations because they feel like, hey, you got to be tough. You got to go through, you got to do things on your own. Sometimes it can be harder for us to take those steps to realize, hey, we're struggling too. So, and I know that you've encountered a lot of these sort of scenarios as well too, the whole sort of tough guy aspect of dealing with mental health. Is there any suggestions that you have in those situations in terms of how they may start to overcome those? Yeah, it's a change in perspective. For me, I think that the the biggest tough guy move that I ever made that showed how strong I was, was to actually start talking about how I was feeling. That hiding it, brushing it under the carpet, pulling up my socks, toughing through it, all those things that you mentioned were actually signs of weakness. They weren't, they weren't strength at all. So you know, being an emotionally aware human being kind of gave me that like strength from a different place that I never thought that I would have that like being vulnerable, um, being human, and actually, you know, feeling the emotions that I was feeling and the effects of them, and talking about them with other people made me the bigger man than I ever was before. Because I, I was an open book. And, you know, I often talk with my peers about living an honest life and what that feels like. Where we are completely open about our lives. Where we're not hiding things. And how that weight, that it just disappears when we actually open up and just be ourselves, Right. I acted for, you know, the first freaking 38 years of my life. Uh, and I was really good. And, uh, but now I'm like, I think I'm at my, at my most powerful when it comes to helping people when I'm my most vulnerable, when I'm not the guy that could lift that weight. I'm not that guy that uh, could, could run 14K before he went to work. I'm not that guy um you know who could do all those manly things but i'm just the guy who can sit down with you listen and give you a safe place to talk and also share parts of my life i think that that makes us stronger human beings stronger men and it's the exact opposite of what we've been taught for all these years i always like to say that everything that i Every time I talk, every time I speak, that when it comes to mental health, we were raised by dinosaurs. And our dinosaurs were raised by older dinosaurs. And the only way that we can change it is by actually just being honest and talking and communicating. This is how I feel. This is why I'm feeling this way. And, you know, on the other side, just listening and being there for someone. I've always sort of taken the perspective that we are all accountable for our ourselves and our emotions and how we interact with people. And the word accountability is too often thought of in a negative term. You're accountable. So you did something wrong. So if there are consequences to the things that you have to do. But I don't believe that. I believe accountability is empowerment. If you are accountable to yourself to seek help 
to overcome the challenges that you need. That's just going to empower you. And by holding other people accountable can empower them. Once again, to clarify, what I'm referring to there is that when you hold someone else accountable, you are giving them the opportunity to be themselves. You're giving them the opportunity to say, I'm not okay. I'm struggling. And you have to just let them deal with that in any way that they need to and let them be themselves. Some people want help. Some people just want someone to listen to. And if you give them that opportunity, they will often come back to you later on and seek help. The tendency is sometimes when you find a solution to a problem, you want to empower other people by providing them with the solution, but they may not be ready for that solution at that time. And so by you trying to make it easier for them, you in essence have stalled their progress. So you, people will reach out when they're ready to reach out and when they need to reach out. And they may never need to do that because the solution for me, the solution for you may not be the right solution for everyone else because we are all unique and we need to celebrate how special and how amazing each one of us is in these scenarios. Now, you have been a musician for most of your life. You worked really extensively to have a professional career and in a retail environment. Through your challenges, you took a big step back to the point where you actually quit playing music completely for a long time. Then through your therapy and your development, you rediscovered your passion for music in the first place. And what you now found was the joy that music brought you was just the experience of being able to play music for yourself. You no longer had to spend your time going through taking all of your energies to learn music for other people because you got three gigs coming up here. And that can take all of your, your energy. Yes, it's a joy to play live music for people, in most situations, but sometimes our commitment to our craft can take that passion away. So I'm really thrilled to see that you managed to bring yourself back to music because now you're playing music for the right reasons. And I think it's too often we forget why we love something in the first place, because, you know, we, we may love music and then it becomes exciting because now we get to play music as a job. Then after a while, I had to remove myself from different situations, not because they were necessarily negative in my life, but they weren't fulfilling. So what does music mean to you now that you're at this stage of your life? Music now is finally self-expression. Music is meaningful because I don't dwell on judgments. I'm not looking around the room for approval, uh, whether that be bandmates, whether that be people in the audience. Um, I play music because I enjoy it again. Because for so many years, as you know, as professional musicians, it's, you know, chase this gig, learn these tunes, uh, get in with these musicians, you'll get more gigs. Um, you know, and it just became so much of who I wasn't. And, you know, 
band dynamics are, 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 are toxic at times, right? Like I was talking with a peer the other day and it's like, why is it that when we screw something up that we get dirty looks from guys in the band? Why aren't we getting smiles and laughter where it's like they're there to lift you up and help you as opposed to scold you for playing a wrong, a wrong chord? And they always look at the bass player. Never the bass player. Anyways, um, so music completely took a different turn for me, right? Like, because now I was realizing that, man, a lot of the problems I had with alcohol, with approval, with judgment, like, all came from playing music for the wrong reasons. And it all started at an early age. I swear to God, like, as soon as I made my first $100 on a gig, my mindset flipped. Like it changed dramatically, you know, and as soon as I went to college for music, uh, I took it as a competition. Like I was, I, I, I was an outsider. I needed to fit in. I wanted to be in with the hip musicians at the school. Um, if I didn't listen to Charlie Parker or Miles Davis, I didn't own this record. I didn't own this record. You didn't hear this, blah, blah, blah. Right. It just went on and on and on all these different things that you had to do to be accepted as a, a, as a hip happening cat, you know, I wasn't capable of doing. So that meant I was useless. I was an outsider and I wasn't good at what I did. I didn't play upright bass. So that meant like I was never called into the jam rooms to jam. There's like a whole bunch of things that, that happened that really controlled how I thought about myself when it came to music. And when I took that eight years off, I mean, I started off at scratch. I started with just sitting in the room with my bass and feeling comfortable with it, playing for like two minutes before I had a negative thought, right? And it was like long and tedious, but then like, and you know, you were there. I, I did my first gig in, uh, in, 20, in 2022 um, and it was the first gig I did in eight years. And it was like a spectacular thing because everything was gone. I was actually playing for the proper reasons. I got up and I played and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed every single note that I made. I paid attention to every note I played, how it sounded. I was fully in the moment. I was never fully in the moment before because my mind was always a thousand places other than where I was supposed to be. And being lost in music again was like one of the most magical things that ever happened to me. And I was so happy that I was able to reach that point. And I got to do three gigs before, uh, you know, 2023. So it was a, it was a pretty impactful thing to relearn how to play again. I mean, all the technical stuff and all the theory and all the bull crap was still there for me to draw upon, but you know, and even now it's even more impactful because I'm having to, you know, completely relearn how to play. Uh, but yeah, it's a completely different, uh, a completely different thing. And it's, it's, it's enjoyable. As we come to a close, if you could look back at your experiences and offer quick little pieces of advice to anyone, just to encourage them to be honest with themselves and to seek help in any form, whether it be through a conversation or therapy, what would those pieces of advice be? Learn that 
learn that saying no is okay. That it's okay to set boundaries and for people to respect them. Uh, use your ears more than your mouth in all relationships, just not uh, when it comes to mental health. Like just do more listening than talking. Uh, you know, and always come from a place of love and kindness. Now, for people that are interested in checking out your books or to connecting with you, what's the best way to reach you? The best way is I have a website, just darcypatrick.com. Uh, there is a contact page on there to contact me. I have my phone number on there. And you can, you know, get all my books through the usual suspects, Amazon and Indigo and uh, there's audiobooks as well. There's ebooks. My newest book I'm working on recording, so that's going to be out soon. Uh, so, thirstypatrick.com is probably the best the best way to get learn more about me and get your hands on what I'm trying to do. It was an absolute pleasure to connect with you, my friend. Um, I always enjoy these conversations, and I am finding so much happiness and joy just to see you doing so well in your life. So I hope that this year is a year that you really continue to find that joy. And I wish you all the best. Thanks. You've been listening to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. Please share and subscribe to get the word out and let's keep the discussion going. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.